The following audio is from a sermon series entitled King Jesus, studying the life and work of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Mark 2:18 through 3:6. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse, worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. One Sabbath he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, if you've got your Bibles, you can go to Mark chapter 2. Not only am I under the weather, but um, we're, we're learning the more and more that I preach and the more I um, preach God's word, I'm learning that, <clears throat> honestly, my wheelhouse is about one verse. <laughs> if I can have one verse in 40 minutes, I feel pretty confident. But uh, when I have 20, 30 verses, um, my brain just doesn't work that way. I like to get down into the details and pull things out. And um, what I've noticed, the, the one sermon I've done that's been 15, 20 verses so far in this book of Mark was my least favorite. I didn't feel like I got the point across very well. Today i got to do that same task. Um, whoa, I feel the light. I feel the light, right? Uh, Okay, I got to get used to that now. Um, so I need help this morning. I need help from the Spirit for sure, and uh, we're gonna we're gonna dive into this. We're gonna see what God has for us. Um, we're gonna be taking a look at three different vignettes of Jesus. Okay, Jesus in three different scenarios, and we're gonna be trying to bring them together and, and see what God is trying to tell us. What Mark. Uh, what God, through Mark, is trying to tell us as he writes this down for us. And all three of these vignettes show us 
how Jesus came to blow up the way mankind naturally encounters God, okay? Jesus came to blow up the way mankind naturally relates to God. Last week, we were hopefully shocked um, when we saw Jesus. Imagine this. You're scrolling through Jesus' Facebook feed, and this picture comes up, and Jesus is hanging out with the worst of the worst. He's hanging out with people who you would consider to be traitors, you would consider unclean. And you see this picture of Jesus, and he's got a wine glass tipped back, and his disciples are all hanging out. New believers are hanging out with him. And he's in this crowd. He's in this setting with notorious sinners. How would you respond if you saw this Jesus Facebook feed and all this stuff going on? You'd probably be shocked by it. But Jesus explained his behavior by saying that he was a spiritual doctor, that he's on call. And we should not be surprised when doctors hang out with sick people. And in fact, we're all called to this work of being spiritual doctors. We've all been called into his mission, to be on mission to sinners. So we should all be on call and spend quality time with sinners, us being sinners ourselves. Jesus says, I have come to bring God to sinners. I am God and I've come, I've been incarnated to walk amongst sinners. I'm bringing God to you. Jesus came to call sinners to come home to a loving and gracious Father. And He did this by hanging out with them, walking and eating and drinking with them on their turf, and by preaching and teaching about the gospel. But Jesus, what we're beginning to see over and over now, Jesus' gospel message as comforting it is to some of us, it's highly offensive to other people. It was polarizing. By the end of these three vignettes that we're going to read today, Jesus has offended both the, both the conservatives and the liberals. So much so that you've got both of them crossing party lines to work together in order to kill Jesus. Let's take a look at um, chapter 3, verse 6. We're going to start there and then we'll work back through it. 3, verse 6. Let's go ahead and read it. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against Jesus how to destroy him. The Pharisees and the Herodians are plotting together to kill Jesus. Now, these two groups represent the ends of the religious spectrum for humanity. On the far right, we have the Pharisees, and on the far left, we have the Herodians. The Herodians were members of Herod's court. This is Herod Antipas we're talking about. He is the youngest son of Herod the Great. Herod Antipas had risen to power by uh, usurping his older brother's rule. And at this time, he had had an affair with one of his other brother's wife. He had divorced his own wife, and then he had married his brother's wife, Herodias. This is a man who is led by his passions. He takes what he wants. He has to, his job, he has, because of his job, he has to work with the Jews, and he has to kind of appease them. 
but he's staunchly allied to Rome, and he embraces a Greco-Roman worldview and religion. Well, what does that mean, a Greco-Roman? That means he's polytheistic. He worships all the Greeks' gods and goddesses. Or maybe we would, how we would say it today is he's a religious pluralist. Okay, All religions are kind of the same. All religions are good as long as they get me what I want. A lot of people in our day and age also say we're spiritual but not religious. What does that mean? It means religion is a buffet. right? It's golden corral. You walk up, that doesn't look too appealing. That doesn't look too appealing. I guess I'll take that. I guess I'll take that. And that's how you treat religion. Whatever works for you. You want a little yoga in your life? Get a little yoga in your life. You want a little Eastern meditation? Get a little Eastern meditation. You want a little moralism from Christianity? Pull that in and develop your own religion based on your own desires, wants, and needs. This is how Herod worked. This is what it means to be a Herodian. You're polytheistic. Religion is a buffet. I pick and choose what I like. But the key, obviously, if you're at the buffet, you're not pulling anything onto that table that you don't like. So the key to this religious pluralistic view, viewpoint, this polytheistic, this kind of spiritual but not religious, is that I only choose things that agree with my sensibilities. So therefore, nothing can cross me. Nothing slaps my hand away. Nothing says no to me. So in this world view, I am God. I pick and choose what's right for me. And we see this in Herod Antipas and his religion. We've got to look forward a little bit. Mark chapter 6, John the Baptist says, your relationship with Herodias is sinful. You are an adulterer. And he gets, and obviously, John the Baptist is thrown in jail for it. And eventually Herodias, because she's so angry at John the Baptist, she does a little dance for Herod, and he says, I'll give you whatever you want. And she says, I want John the Baptist's head on a platter. And he complies. See, Herod was clearly an immoral man. He made his own rules. He used religion to get what he wanted. He didn't follow the rules. He wasn't moral. He slept with whoever he wanted to. He gained promotions any way that he could. If he had to bend the rules or break the rules or kill in order to do it, that's all right. And like many people today, Herod wanted Jesus to fit nicely into his worldview. Jesus, come into this polytheistic worldview of mine where all gods are the same. Come on in. You're kind of cool. You're doing some fun things. You're entertaining. I like some of the things that you have to say. Obviously, you've got some power. You're healing folks. I think I'd like a little bit of Jesus in my life alongside my Eastern meditation and alongside my other things. But what we're going to see today is Jesus will not be added to anyone's worldview. Jesus will not be added to anyone's current systems of relating to God. He won't fit nicely into a soft and cozy pluralistic worldview that sees all religions having the same equal value and leading to the same place. Jesus says all religions, other religions are false. I am the only true way to know God. I am the only right way. You can follow me and thereby deny every other religion and all other gods. 
This is the exclusivity of Jesus. And this deeply offends the Herodians like it deeply offends many of us today. How can your way be the only way? How can your truth be the only truth? How can Christianity be the only? There's many world religions out there. How do you know you're right? Many of us see this kind of rightly. That it's kind of it's kind of narrow-minded in our culture. So why can't Jesus play nice? Why can't Jesus play nice with all the other religions in the world? Well, the answer to that actually is kind of surprising. The reason Jesus can't play nice with all other religions in the world is because Jesus came to blow up religion entirely. And by religion, I mean the way mankind naturally tries to relate to God. And we're going to see that point being poignantly made today by the way Jesus offends the Herodians, right, the, the, the liberals, but the way also he offends the Pharisees, the conservatives. See, Jesus was a Jew. To be a Jew, and listen, I'm just going to tell you this. The first, you know, 20 sermons in the book of Mark, we really have to get our bearings, okay? So I have to do a lot of back work, a lot of historical analysis for you guys. I've got to let you know about the setting and the cultural context and try to, def- who are the characters, who are the Pharisees, who are the Sadducees, who are the Herodians, who is John the Baptist. But then once we get into the book, I have to do less of that. So there's going to be a lot of history that I have to cover today, all right? I'm just going to let you know that. So Jesus was a Jew. To be a Jew means you were from Abraham's lineage, right? Abraham was chosen by God. He was a pagan moon worshiper, and God appeared to him and said, I'm going to bless you to be a blessing to the nations, that you are going to be my people, and I'm going to bless you, and and I'm going to raise up a, a deliverer and a redeemer through you. The Jews were the people who were given Uh, The Torah, what is the Torah? That's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The first five books of the Bible, the law, okay? In that you have the Ten Commandments. But over and over, and this is kind of their way to relate to God. But over and over through the Old Testament, you see that the Jews and the Israelites, they would wander from the law. They would walk away from God and they would follow their own ways, And every time they do that, things go bad for them. See, this is a huge theme in the Bible. We're prone to wander. We're prone to go back to our natural ways of relating to God. We're prone to leave God and His rules and His ways and go to our own schemes. And every time that happens, our life begins to go downhill. Well, here's what happens. About 200 years before the birth of Jesus, the Pharisees show up on the scene. And they were a group that was created to bring about a spiritual renewal. Okay, they were a spiritual renewal group. They they would be committed to the law. They wouldn't wander like the Israelites have done over and over and over. They're going to be committed to the law. They would love the Torah and they would follow the rules. Their name means either the separated ones or the holy ones. That's what Pharisees mean. So they were reformers meant to bring a return to the ways of God found in the law. But here at the time of Jesus, or here at the time of Jesus, 200 years after they've been founded, uh, Israel is ruled by the Romans, right? So they're under this 
Greco-Roman pressure of their society, of their cultural values and their religion. And the Pharisees were staunchly opposed to it. They wanted to remain strictly, purely Jewish. Okay? Return to the Torah. We don't want the contamination from the culture. They didn't want any of the Greco-Romans' liberalism to infect them. So to paint them with a really large brush, the Herodians were the liberals, and the Pharisees were the conservatives, two ends of the religious spectrum with a myriad of different viewpoints and people in between there. And Jesus comes to this earth as a Jew, and he enters into this hotbed of religious animosity between the right-winged Pharisees and the left-winged Herodians. And he, listen to this, this is crazy. He manages to infuriate them both in such a way that by the end of these three narratives, they're all working together to kill him. It takes a a mighty thing to get the right-wingers and the left-wingers working together for the same goal. But Jesus manages to do it. See, we've already seen here that the Herodians hated him because he was too moral. He was too narrow. His way is the only way. I won't fit into this religious system that you've got. But why would the Pharisees hate him? He's a Jew. Isn't he come? Isn't he going to bring renewal? Isn't he going to bring Israel back to the law? And is he going to, you know, reform Israel? Well, our text answers that for us today, and it's going to surprise us. What we're going to see is the Pharisees hate Jesus for the same reason the Herodians do. Because Jesus came to blow up religion. Pluralistic religion hates Jesus because he's too narrow. Moralistic religion hates Jesus because he's too inclusive, and he's too loose with the rules. This showdown is going to take place primarily over two rules, fasting and Sabbath-keeping. Let's take a look at this. Uh, Chapter 2, verses 18 is where we're going to start today. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why did John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast but your disciples do not fast. Now, fasting was commanded in the law, in the Torah, once every year. On the Day of Atonement, they were to fast from sunup to sundown. And the Pharisees took that one rule and they upgraded it, let's say. The Pharisees would fast twice a week, okay? So because I was, I'm not very good with math, I texted one of our financial team members last night, and I said, okay, if you go from doing something once a year to uh, 104 times a year, what percentage increase is that? And that is a 10,300% increase year to year, okay? So I want you to see the Pharisees' concepts about getting serious about God. Oh, the law says to do it once, let's do it 104 times a year. He says fast once, let's have a 10,300% increase over that. I bet God will be really happy about that. You guys are hardcore, you fast once, I fast 104 times a year. 
you can see that the Pharisees were showing, were trying to showing, show their devotion to God by being really somber and serious. Let's fast. And at this time, if you wanted to be anybody in the religious world, if you wanted to get a hearing, if you wanted to gain a following, if you wanted to be taken seriously for your religion, you had to fast. But here comes Jesus. <coughs> Excuse me. And his disciples don't fast. They eat and drink with sinners. And again, this is going to provoke his behavior and the disciples' behavior is going to provoke a question from the audience that says, why do you do that? And Jesus answers them. Look, look what he says here. And Verse 19. And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast? Well, the bridegroom is with them. As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Jesus says, why don't we fast? Because I'm the groom and this is my wedding day. The groom doesn't fast. No, nobody in the wedding party is going to fast at a wedding celebration. It's inappropriate to fast right now, to look somber, to walk around. The groom's here. This is a wedding feast. There's a time for feast. This is a time for feasting and not fasting. And then he's going to give them the first parable in the Gospel of Mark. Let's keep reading. Well, verse 20. The days will come when the bridegroom, the groom, is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. So he's, this is his first allusion to his death, that he's going to be taken from them. And when he is taken from them, then they will fast. The days will, okay, verse 21. No one... This, is, this, is, this was not new to them, but this might be new to us, okay? No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, okay? So brand new clothes, you throw them in the dryer, what happens? They shrink, right? So if you have old clothes that have been, you know, they've been worn out and they're, they're not going to shrink anymore, and then you get a hole in the knee and you patch that with a brand new piece of cloth, you could have been a hole this big around, and you put a patch around it, you throw that in the dryer, or you wear that, and what's naturally going to happen is the old cloth will stay the same, the new cloth will shrink, and it will pull away, and it will make a bigger hole than was already made. Okay, keep reading. Verse 22. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh new wineskins. Now, my grandpa uh, makes his own wine. And <clears throat> he was learning to do this, and he's got some, you know, much like if you're making your own beer and you've got these big five-gallon glass jugs. They're about a quarter inch, three-eighths three of an inch thick. Uh, they're big, solid jugs. And he was making his own wine, and he had several of them going on down in the basement. And... Um, you know, wine takes a while. It ferments. It's living and active. The, the yeast is eating, and, and it's growing and expanding on inside of it. And he thought that, this was one of his first opportunities, he thought that, okay, it's all done. It's been work, the stuff's been working and for a while. I think the wine is old enough now, so he put a cork on it, and it was ready to be, it was gonna be, ready to be shared. And all of a sudden, like a week or so later, he's, and my grandpa, is, he lives on a mountain in Alabama. He's a little paranoid. If you ever feel a lump in any chair or bed, it's because it's a gun underneath you somewhere, 
okay? If you're ever in a doubt, just pull out a drawer, you're going to find a weapon, okay? He's a little paranoid. And uh, all of a sudden, my grandpa's getting ready to go to bed one night, and bam, he hears a gunshot. Bam, bam, right? Now, he's either thinking, <laughs> somebody's stealing my firewood, okay? He would think that, okay? Like he's got the fanciest firewood on the block or something. Somebody's either still, or he doesn't know what's going on. So he gets his weapon, and he hears it coming from the basement. And he goes downstairs, and these five-gallon glass jugs are exploding, right? The wine was still alive. The wine was still working, and he had corked it too soon, and it was going off. And five-gallon glass jars sound like gunshots, when they go off, and he learned that you do not cork, you do not put new wine into these wine skins and put a cork on it because they're going to blow it up. The same thing that Jesus is teaching right here. You don't put new wine into old wine skins because the old wine skins get they get hard, right? They get crusty, and this new wine it's living and active. It expands and it will blow up whatever you put it in, unless you put it in a new wine, a wine skin that can move and breathe, move with it. Now, what Jesus is doing here is he's saying. This is a new paradigm. This is a new religious paradigm. This is a new paradigm on how God relates to human beings. That Jesus himself is this new patch. Jesus himself is this new wine that requires completely new clothes and brand new wineskins. You cannot add Jesus to your old way of relating to God. Jesus is saying, I will blow up your life as you know it that I'm unlike anyone that's ever came before me. And he's speaking to the Jews who are thinking of, in these lines of great kings and great priests and great prophets and even the Messiah is going to fulfill all these longings of Israel. And he's saying, I'm unlike anybody that's ever came before me and you can't just apply me to that old system of relating to God. I blow the thing up. See, the Pharisees, the renewal group, right? They're hoping for renewal. Give me one more rule to follow God better. Give me one more trick that can help me relate to God and spice up my quiet time. So many people I meet are like this. Tell me how to fix my marriage. I'm only here because I want to fix my marriage. Tell me how to get over this addiction to pornography. I just want to get over it. See, so many people come into our church and come into our missional community and they treat Jesus just like they treat AA. Here's one more thing I can try and I, can hope, I hope it works. But Jesus is like new wine. He's alive and he's active and you can't just add him to your life. He's going to blow the whole thing up. He's God in the flesh. And I love how, listen how C.S. Lewis describes kind of this encounter uh, in mere Christianity. Instead of uh, wineskins, he's, he's using the analogy of a house. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. So many of us, we come to God because, hey, you know what? I got a leaky roof. I got a leaky roof. I need God, I need you to fix my leaky roof, okay? The toilet's not quite working right. I need you to fix that. We come to God because we want him to fix something about our life. Listen. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. 
you knew, you knew that those jobs needed, oh, Jesus, so thank you for doing this work in my life and work in my heart and fixing my marriage and getting me through this addiction. And I thank you for doing this work. So you're not surprised, but presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably. And he does not, it doesn't seem to be making any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of. He's throwing out a new wing here. He's putting on an extra floor there. He's running up towers. He's making courtyards. See, you thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he's building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. See, the old wineskins of our religion won't house Jesus. He's coming to blow it up, and he's building us into a house that's bigger than we've ever imagined, that's more beautiful than we've ever imagined. Because he's coming to live in it himself. See, you can try to make a little space in your busy life for Jesus, but he won't stay there. See, Jesus wants all of you. Many researchers today say that uh, one of the predominant ways young people are relating to God is through this, what's been labeled now, a moralistic, therapeutic deism. Moralistic, it means God basically says, be good. And if you're good, I'll bless you. If you're good, your life will go well for you. Um, it's therapeutic, and most people, they only want to relate to God uh, when it's going bad for them. So when they feel sick, when their relationships aren't working out, when they miss the promotion, when the thing they're really after fails them, now they come to God, and now they pray, and now they seek God. It's therapeutic. It's about me. It's about helping me. And deism, he's kind of far away. God doesn't really care about us, and he doesn't really have any standards. He's just really far away. And he just wants me to kind of be good and have a happy life. And, and he's there just meet my needs whenever he needs, whenever I want him to. See, and Jesus came to blow that up. That moralistic way of relating to God, that religious way of God. Jesus came to blow up the wineskins of religion. And what's shocking, and I couldn't come up with an analogy for this. And it's, I'm just going to make the statement, and, and most of us probably won't really, we won't be able to get it because we don't understand the longing of the Pharisees. But Jesus is telling the Pharisees, you can't add me to Judaism. You can't add me to the Old Testament list of prophets, priests, and kings. You can't add me to that. I'll blow the whole thing up. I'm not renewing Judaism. I'm fulfilling it and starting something brand new. It is a completion of everything in the Old Testament. And this is blowing their minds. Look at, that's fasting. Now let's look at Sabbath, verse 23. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. Okay, I want you to think about this. They're walking through a grain field. The disciples are running their hands through the grain field, getting some grain, popping in their mouth, okay? And the Pharisees were saying to him, can I just say this right now? It's, it's clear that his disciples were following Jesus, but the Pharisees, they're always kind of right there too. The religious, moral ones, they're always right there, kind of right on the edges, fringes of Jesus. See, many people think the greatest threat to Christianity today is all the crazy 
murdering and the killing and, and all the stuff that's going on. That is a great threat, but the greatest threat is always religion. It's always the good folks that are on the outside that are just w- waiting to twist the gospel into a moralistic way to relate to God. The danger is always inside the church. It's the, the ones outside the church really just renew our commitment, right? Let's keep reading. The Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Now, if the Pharisees were serious about fasting, they were even more serious about the Sabbath. Obviously, uh, circumcision and the Sabbath were the two most sacred things, really, to the Pharisees. And what is the Sabbath? At creation, God created everything that exists in six days, and then he rested on the seventh day. And he didn't rest because he was tired or worn out. God doesn't get tired. He rested uh, to enjoy his creation. He rested to start something that man should follow in his image, that we should work six days and we should rest on the seventh. And then when God gave the law to Moses, the fourth commandment was to keep the Sabbath, keep it holy. Do not work on the Sabbath. The Sabbath is for God. They were to rest from their work. But now let's, I want you to think about this. If God says to us, do not work on the Sabbath. You can work six days a week, but one day a week, I want you to rest. This kind of begs the question, what is work? Just, just what constitutes work? If I get out of bed, is that working? If I brush my teeth, if I change my kid's diaper, if I go feed the animal, what, what constitutes work? And the Pharisees were so intent <coughs> on keeping the Sabbath that they came up. I mean, I love it. This is where, I think this is where Microsoft Excel was created, okay? They had to make a spreadsheet, right? Like, okay, don't work on the Sabbath. What does that mean? What constitutes work? So they created 39 different categories of work. And then under, you'd click on those categories in their Excel file. And under those, listed all the things you could do and you couldn't do. Okay? I have the list, but I'm not going to waste time in reading it. You can Google it if you want. Um, but they, you couldn't harvest grain. You couldn't walk more than like 1,800 paces. You could, I mean, it was just listed out detail after detail after detail. And listen to this uh, from a commentary by uh, J. Ed- Edwards. He says this, the comprehensiveness of the tradition of Sabbath keeping is revealed in the following ruling. Listen to this. If a building fell down on the Sabbath, enough rubble could be removed to discover if any victims were dead or alive. If alive, they could be rescued. But if dead, the corpses must be left until sunset. Okay? Details. We're getting down to the nitty-gritty details. What constitutes a work and what constitutes resting? And this is the way the Pharisees treated the Sabbath. And I'm just going to say, this is what kind of moralistic religion does. It takes a good gift of God and he turns it into an almost impossible list of do's and don'ts, which, which choke out the joy and the blessedness of the gift. Okay, I'm getting up on Sabbath. Can I make a cup of coffee? Hmm, maybe not. Should I just sit here and stare at my wife? Right? It takes the joy of rest, the joy of 
feasting, the joy of enjoying God and his creation. And it puts an impossible burden, a huge ladder of do's and don'ts on it. And Jesus says to the Pharisees, well, let's see what he says here. Well, he uses some, uh, an Old Testament kind of analogy and gives them a new principle from their own law, but let, or from their own Old Testament. But let's go down to verse 27. And Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Now, that is huge, what Jesus says right there. He gives a principle that's huge. Jesus is saying the Sabbath is about restoring the weary. It's about resting from our work and enjoying God and his creation. It's not about all the rules that you have piled upon it. The Sabbath was actually made for man. That's the principle. But here's what I love about Jesus. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> this doesn't just give us principles. Here's another rule. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Have fun with that. Jesus doesn't just give us another principle. He's going to blow up their grid of principles. He's going to blow up all the religious ways of relating to God. Jesus says this. Here's what he grounds the principle in, okay? The principle that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, is grounded in verse 28. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Pop goes the wineskin. Jesus is saying, I have authority even over the Sabbath. The Sabbath, the commandment given by God, the creational mandate given in Genesis. What's he saying? I have authority over God? What? God gave you that. He's saying, I am God. That's what he's saying. Jesus is saying, I have authority even over the Sabbath Jesus is saying, the Sabbath is ultimately about me. The Sabbath is pointing to me, the Lord of the Sabbath, that I am your ultimate rest from work. I am the one whose work will enable you to rest forever in eternity. That in me, in Jesus, the weak find their strength. In me, those who stop their working can be given new garments of my righteousness. Jesus says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. This is picked up again in Hebrews. Jesus is ultimately blowing their grids here. He's saying, the only way you can understand the Old Testament, the only way you can understand the Ten Commandments, the only way you can even understand some elements of creation is by knowing first and foremost, Jesus. That Jesus is the new interpretive lens for everything in the Old Testament. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. And here Jesus is popping the wineskins of religion. Religion, what is that? Man's attempt to get to God. Man's attempt to modify their behavior to be pleasing to God. And Jesus has already used two powerful metaphors here for himself. He said this, I'm the groom and I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. Both of these metaphors are meant to communicate his supremacy over all the religious ways that people try to relate to God. And both of them tick off the Pharisees. 
he's looking at them and they're all somber and treating God, you know, like he's kind of a deist and trying to please God through all their somber. And he's like, you should be feasting. The groom's here. It's a time for feasting, not fasting. But listen, most of us weren't, you know, okay, Justin, so what, right? So what? The fat, you know, they're breaking fasts and they're, he's, he's not, you know, obeying the Sabbath perfectly according to their rules. So what? See, most of us don't think kind of doctrinally. Most of us don't get emotionally connected with doctrine. We need to see uh, doctrine put on flesh. And that, thankfully, that's what Jesus does. See, see, how does it live? Jesus blows up religion. What does that look like in real life? How do you relate to God if it's not through religion, if it's not through a ladder leaned up where I'm good enough and that's how I get to God? If I obey the rules or if I read enough or pray enough, eventually I'm going to make my way up where God's pleased with me. What's, it, what's this look like, this Jesus blowing up the wineskin of religion? How does it look like in the flesh? Look at chapter 3, verse 1. I call this scene the showdown. And I would love to have some kind of Western music overdubbed right now. If I was into that sort of thing, using illustrations and that kind of stuff up on stage, I'd play something right now where you'd hear some kind of wider showdown music, tumbleweed going. That's what's going on right now. And G- here we go, verse, chapter 3, verse 1. And he, that's Jesus, entered the synagogue. So here Jesus now stepping into the Pharisees' turf. And a man was there with a withered hand. Now a withered hand isn't, I mean it stinks, right? It's not, but it's not, you could wear a long sleeve, you, can cut, you could just hide that thing. Okay? Like a withered hand, we're not talking about uh, leprosy like we've seen before. Okay? We're not talking about somebody who's dead or even going to die from it. Right? We're just talking about a malady. We're just talking about a deformity. We're talking about something that's just, that's not right about this person. Okay? And this guy's in the temple, he's in the synagogue, and he's got this withered hand, and Jesus steps in, and Jesus notices it. Okay? Jesus sees this man's brokenness, no matter how small it is, no matter how insignificant it is, he sees this brokenness. Let's keep reading. And they watched, that's the Pharisees, they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. Now listen, one of those weird Sabbath rules I talked about, this is crazy, if you got a dislocated ankle, right, walking around, bam, pop your ankle out, you could not set your ankle until that night when Sabbath was over or the next day. That's work. Couldn't pop your ankle back in, okay? So just suck it up, right? That's, a, that's, that's the rule, okay? So you can't heal on the Sabbath. So the Pharisees, they're, they're watching, man with withered hand, Jesus likes to heal people. Let's see what's going to happen on the Sabbath. Is he going to break the Sabbath? And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. So you can see this is kind of set up. They're kind of setting him up. And Jesus said to the man with the withered hand, come here. All right, first off, if you've got a malady in your own life, if you've got something that you're ashamed of, nobody walks around wanting to draw attention to something that's wrong with their body, right? We do everything we possibly can when we wake up in the morning to hide our flaws, right? We want to wear, a, you know, I want to wear vertical stripes because it's going to make me look tall and thin. I don't want to wear horizontal stripes to make me look wide, right? We're going to do everything we can to accentuate our positives and hide our negatives. So this man, no doubt, is kind of hiding his withered hand, and the first thing Jesus does is say, that thing you're trying to hide, come here right now. All eyes on this man, drawing attention to the center of the room. Okay? 
come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill? But they were silent. Edmund Burke first stated, and I think from then Martin Luther King Jr. said, all that is necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. See, Jesus doesn't have to heal this man. Jesus wants to heal this man. The Pharisees are sitting over there. They're okay with him having a a messed up hand. They're okay with his malady. They're wanting to trap Jesus. So Jesus says, is it good to heal? Can I heal this guy? Can I do good on the Sabbath? And they're silent. They would rather have Jesus obey the rules of Sabbath than see a person healed. They would rather see Jesus obey the law than see a man redeemed and restored. The law is more precious than the mercy and the kindness and the grace of God. He says this, is it lawful to do good or to do harm? This is about the dude's hand. He's asking for permission. Oh, kind of. Can I do it? Can I do it? They're silent. Look at verse 5. And Jesus looked around at them with anger. Grieved at their hardness of heart. The only times in the book of Mark these three words are used. Jesus is angry. He's grieved at their hardness of heart. Their heart is hard like the old wineskin. They would rather see this guy obey the rules see a person experience healing or new life. See, first off, this is why we need regeneration, that our hearts are hard, our hearts are old wineskin, and we need the Spirit of God to come into us and take this hard heart of stone and make it into a soft heart of flesh that God can come in and live and expand it as He works on us, expand our capacity for understanding who He is and what He came to do, expand our capacity to love our neighbors and love our wives and love our enemies. He's at work expanding us right now. But this, again, is where their wineskin goes pop. He says this. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. Expose your weakness. Share your greatest struggle. Share the thing that you're ashamed of. Bring it into the light. That thing you've been trying to hide, you've walked in and you've kind of covered it up. That thing that you don't want anybody to know about, that you're really embarrassed about. Expose it to me. In front of people. In community. Expose that thing to me. Bring it out in the open air. And he stretched it out. And his hand was restored. This is the work of God. This is the work of Jesus. Jesus makes their wineskin go pop 
He busts out of the religious box that they've tried to keep him in. He's better than fasting. He's bigger than the Sabbath. He's here to make crooked things straight. He's here to make withered people whole. This is why Jesus came. Stretch it out and Jesus heals it. And this is where we get to see the great difference between the gospel of Jesus Christ and religion. See, Jesus didn't come preaching a new religion. He came proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God. What what do you mean by that? Justin, listen. Whether it's moralistic religion or pluralistic religion, religion is about control. It's about being in control of something. And the gospel of the kingdom is about relinquishing control. In a kingdom, the king is in control, not the subjects. I had a, a few years ago, I was on mission to a friend of mine who was my coach at CrossFit in Omaha. And I had a lot of opportunities to kind of share the gospel with him. And, and then I had to move away. And I, our relationship never really uh, got to go anywhere uh, too deep that I, I was really upset about. And then I went to Chicago to get a, a certification for CrossFit. And he was, the, he was the guy leading the whole thing. And he pointed me out and he came and talked to me. And uh, he told me he was getting married and, and some things. And I was really excited, so I went home and I got him a uh, Tim Keller book, wrote inside it, put my number in it, sent it to him, didn't hear anything back for a few weeks, or a few months, actually. And then uh, I got a, some text messages, and we've been, we've, our relationship's gone to a whole other level. We've been sharing, I've been sharing the gospel with him, and he's read a few more books, and God's just really at work doing a great work in his life. And he said something to me this last couple weeks ago. He goes, the first time I met you, you told me my greatest problem was I wanted to be in control. And I had no recollection of this, but it sounds like something I'd say. <laughs> so I agreed with him. And he goes, I had no idea what you were talking about. I had no idea what you were talking about. My problems were always because of my fiance and because of my business partner and because of my members and because of the people that are in, in my life. They're so frustrating working with these broken people. <laughs> my problem is always, and you said, my problem was being in control, and I didn't understand that. And he goes, and, and I'm going to tell you, man, that I still have a lot of sin in my heart, but I can see that now. I can see that my greatest problem is my desire to be in control, and I'm really aware now that I'm not in control and that God is in control and that God is my Savior. And I was like, yes. See, what's going on right here? Religion. It's about being in control. See, Herod wanted to be in control of his life, so he chose a religion where he could pick and choose what was good for him. This is the wineskin of the spiritual but not religious. But Jesus won't play nice with other religions and other so-called gods because he's the only true God. What would Jesus be saying? Why would Jesus come and die? The cross tells us all of the religions are fake because it takes the death of God to bring you back to God. The only thing that can restore you to a relationship with God is if God himself takes your place and dies the death that you deserve. How could any other religion be true? No other religion has God dying for man. Jesus is the only true God. He says, you can't add me to the list. I blow up the list. I'm God. But the moralistic Pharisees, see, 
their religion. They, they want to be in control too. See, listen to this. If you think you have the truth, if you think the truth is on your side and you've got some rules to follow, you think that you can be in control. All you got to do to be on God's team, all you got to do to be accepted by God is to obey some rules. Listen, most of us really, really want to know that we're doing a good job. And there's really no easier way to find out if you're doing a good job or not than to look at the list. How are you knocking things off the to-do list? So people that embrace Jesus by faith, they go back to this religious way of look, looking at things and they say, how's my quiet times been lately? How much scripture am I memorizing? See, they go back to this list to justify their self again. And what happens is if you're doing well, this gives you a great feeling of superiority of other, over others. Those foolish people, man, why can't they just get it together? Why can't they just read their Bible? It's so easy. Why can't they just stop looking at pornography? Why can't they just put the bottle down? Why can't they just work hard? It's so easy. This is the greatest threat to this church. Oh, we can preach the gospel of grace from the pulpit, but can we live it in the day-to-day? This is why community is so necessary. I am awesome when I'm alone with my Bible. I am awesome. In the word, Jesus loves me, right? I'm awesome. When I'm not awesome is when other people are around me and their sin is getting on my nerves and my sin is getting on their nerves and they're hard to forgive and they're hard to love. Listen to this. So many people think that if Satan took over the world, it would be, you know, all demons and gargoyles and mass murderers. No, I think it'd be a whole lot of Sunday mornings, a whole lot of religious choirs, a whole lot of good moralistic people feeling way superior to those mass murderers and those crazy people out there. In uh, C.S. Lewis book, The Screwtape Letters, which is phenomenal if you haven't read it. There's these demons and they're kind of giving counsel to younger demons on how to tempt people and how to get them on their side and how to ruin their life. And this is what he says one time when he's having a feast with them. <coughs> this is a demon speaking to a younger demon. All, all said and done, my friends, it will be an ill day for us if what most humans mean by religion ever vanishes from the earth. See, religion can still send us the truly delicious sins. The fine flower of unholiness can grow only in the close neighborhood of the holy. Nowhere do we tempt so successfully as on the very steps of the altar. Jesus says, I am the end of religion. I'm going to blow that wineskin up. Religion is a treadmill that never stops. It demands more and more and more from you, and eventually it will run you into the ground. The gospel of Jesus is good news. In the gospel, Jesus gets put in the ground so that you can rest from your work.
in the gospel of Jesus. Jesus works so we can rest. In this story, a man gets a new hand and it doesn't cost him a penny. But that new hand wasn't free. That new hand was bought and paid for by Jesus' hands being nailed to a rugged rugged Roman cross. Jesus knows that right here. See, Jesus isn't just saying, Jesus is moved with compassion. He knows what it feels like for this man to be broken and have something he's ashamed of. And he says, stretch it out. But Jesus doesn't do this just to be a sideshow. He doesn't do this just to draw some claps from the crowd. Jesus knows if I heal this man from a malady that's not even that big of a deal. Can we be honest? A withered hand. He can do a lot of things with a withered hand. He can still get dressed. He can still love his wife. He can still work. He can do a lot of things. This isn't life-threatening. But Jesus is willing to say, to heal this man, I'm willing to give up my life. Is it, what, what can you do on the Sabbath? Remember what he said? To kill a life or to save it? He's not saving a man's life. He knows he's killing his own life. Stretch out that hand. I'll pay the price. It'll cost me my death, but it's worth it to me. Stretch it out. Let me heal it. Let me take your place. Jesus knows this healing will cost him his life. And that's the difference between Jesus and religion. Religion asks, how far will you go for God? Guys, I remember when I was growing up, they're having these big conferences, you know, like kind of like the Passion Conferences, but there's something else. And there, people were taking Nazarite vows. They're going to find some obscure text, and I think it's in Leviticus, where they take Nazarite vows and they never cut their hair. And these people are like, "Be serious about God. Take a Nazarite vow. Grow your hair and grow your beard, and, and let's get serious." How weird! But how do we do this? We do this over and over and over. I'm serious, so I'm going to read the Bible through in a year. I'm serious, so I'm going to fast everything. I'm serious, so I'm going to really, whatever it is. Religion asks, how far will you go for God? How serious are you about God? Jesus blows that up, and he shows how far God will go for us. He'll leave heaven for us. Religion says do more. God says it's all done in Jesus. Religion says get to work. Jesus says it is finished. And you know what the gospel does? The gospel, listen, okay, moralistic religion can produce moral people somewhat. Straight lace, good You know, they don't cheat on their taxes and they don't cheat on their wives and they look good on the outside. They look like good church-going people. But what moralistic religion can't produce is humility. Because moralistic always looks down on the people. They justify themselves by, at least I'm not like that. At least I'm not like that. At least my kids aren't like that. But here in the gospel, you see a humility. We see two things that we hold together. We can only hold them together at the gospel. A humble confidence. The humility to Jesus say, stretch it out. The thing you're ashamed of, the thing you're afraid of, the wound that you have, the malady that you're living with, the addiction that you've got, stretch it out. Bring it into the air. Bring it into the open. Bring it out into the community of Jesus. Bring it out. Stretch it out. 
That takes humility to do that, to admit I'm a sinner or I'm broken and I need help and I can't fix myself. That takes humility. But then also we see this phenomenal confidence that Jesus restores when they do that, that Jesus renews, that Jesus gives new wineskins, that he's at work growing us from the inside out, and Jesus produces in us the same spirit that he has, that we can walk into a room of religious people and not kowtow to their religiosity. We're not going to bow to them. Oh, I'm really worried if somebody's going to, you know, look, people, I'm just going to go here right now, I'm sorry. Since I was 18 years old, I've loved smoking a cigar. Loved it. I don't idolize it. I don't do it every week. I don't do it every day. I'm not addicted to it by any means. Maybe it's part of it might, might be my personality. I'm ADHD off the charts. And it's the only time where I sit down for a solid hour or two and just enjoy God and enjoy his creation without having to do anything. It also enables me to talk to men and disciple men because we're just sitting there doing nothing. Right? I enjoy it. And I remember... Growing up in the church, and I remember everyone said, oh, you can't do that. What if people walk by your house? Like, I couldn't do it anywhere in public, but could I do it on my own front porch? What if people walked by and saw you smoking a cigar? They would think I smoke a cigar. What about being above reproach? Give me a break. Give me See, religion wants to bend all these rules that kind of make, oh, maybe I should never drink a sip of alcohol. Oh, maybe I should never do this or say that. or what? Maybe I should just, oh, how many rules? How many rules do I have to? And it's just overwhelming. And we have two, we're not, we're not talking about tertiary matters here like, you know, smoking a cigar here. We're talking about the Sabbath and fasting. And Jesus allows them to blow up to go deeper in the gospel, to bring freedom to the captives. Listen, if you're in this room and you don't know God, I'm just, or if you know, you've known God in this religious, pluralistic way as a part of some other, you know, a bunch of other gods, or if you've known God in this moralistic sense, he just wants you to do good and be good so he can bless you, listen, you won't know God if you want to know God, look to Jesus. The exact imprint of his nature. He's the groom. He's not inviting you to fast. Boy, that's just, come to my wedding. We're going to starve. No good wine. No out, closed bar. We're going to bring the bartender in, but it's going to be a closed bar. Just so you can look at it and go, oh, really, I wish. We're going to sit there and fast. Yeah. And when you walk in, we're going to throw ashes on your face. We want you to look sad and somber. Right? Jesus says, no. I am the groom inviting you to the wedding feast. And we know in the book of Revelation, that's what happens at the end of time, that Christ comes down and he gathers his bride. He's the groom that gathers his bride. And we sit down and we have this phenomenal feast, the marriage supper of the lamb. Jesus is God inviting you to the marriage feast. He's the groom inviting you to the greatest party the world will ever know, the marriage supper of the lamb and he's the lord of the sabbath inviting you to rest from your works. Lay your works down at the feet of Jesus and rest. This is the great good news 
of the gospel. There's a hymn that says, lay your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Lay your religion down. Lay your trying to earn his favor or try to be good enough or prove that you're religious by your fasting and by your moral effort. Lay it down and trust in Christ's perfect performance on your behalf. And what you're going to realize is when you accept this and when this happens and you preach the gospel to yourself over and over and over and turn from this religion, you're going to find yourself doing works. You're going to find yourself resting. You're going to find yourself fighting sin. But you're going to be doing it out of joy and out of gratitude, empowered by the Spirit, not that white-knuckled obedience that we're so keen to. Religion says, how far will you go for God? And the gospel says, look how far God has gone for you. And that's what we're going to do this morning as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. This meal tells us, it does, let's just say it does two things first off. One, it tells us how far God came for us. He didn't come just to come preach some new principles. He came to be our Savior. That Jesus took the cross for us. That's how far he came. But you know what it also does? It also speaks to something that's coming in the future. That there's a feast coming. There's an ingathering of all of God's people, all of the bride of Christ, and we're going to celebrate for eternity at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And this speaks to that as well. Jesus said <coughs> on the Last Supper, we'll drink of the cup of the, cup of the vine again until the marriage supper of the Lamb. So Jesus is waiting right now for his bride to show up. And we're going to drink together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. <coughs> I thank you for your grace on me that I lasted as long as I did. You are the end of religion. Totally new of relating the way mankind can relate to God through grace, the gospel, through Jesus. I thank you that what you ask of us now is to respond in faith to turn from our religion and to turn to Jesus and to put our trust, lay our weight on him, lay our confidence, not in our flesh, but our confidence completely in Christ and let us experience the freedom of the true Sabbath rest. There still remains a Sabbath rest for us and that Sabbath of rest is in Christ. As believers come down this morning, may we turn from our religious rules, our religiosity, the way that we try to separate ourselves from sinners through our obedience to commands. May we repent of that when we lay it down. May we hear Jesus say, stretch out your weakness, stretch out your sickness, stretch out your pain, stretch out what's broken. And may you heal us, Father, as we take the body of Christ into our mouth. Christ is coming that near to us. He's in us expand this wineskin that we have as we drink the cup. May we, we be reminded that your blood satisfies the wrath of God, that your blood cleanses us from all sin. Your blood makes us new. We thank you for this. We glorify the God who would do such as a thing as this, who would come so far to save us. In Christ's powerful name we pray, amen.